I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. Hollywood's representation of underserved and marginalized populations has been under scrutiny since the first film flickered. Authentic storytelling that fully embraces the complexity and vibrancy of peoples must be rooted in and informed by those people. Early in the 20th century, film provided a window into the lives, stories, and narratives of those far and wide. And, as we've learned from the comic book industry, with great power comes great responsibility. Unfortunately, many early filmmakers used this power to further spread inaccuracies and hatred. One of these most famous films is Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's 1915 adaptation of the 1905 novel The Klansman. It tells the story of two families dealing with the fallout of the Civil War with a very slanted view. To contrast, early black filmmaker and novelist Oscar Micheaux wrote and directed the 1919 film The Homesteader, which chronicled life for black Americans during post-Civil War, but from an authentic perspective, offering a counter-argument to Griffith and the work of other filmmakers at the time. In this episode of Systemic, our host Dan Kimbrough sits down with Dr. Charlene Register from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Register teaches in the Department of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies, and her work focuses on early Black film history, including Black filmmakers, actresses, actors, and performers. Our discussion looks at the life and works of Oscar Micheaux and how we almost lost them, the film-going and artistic experience for Black people in the early 20th century, and the lessons filmmakers and society as a whole should learn from these early efforts. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Systemic. I'm your host, Dan Kimbrough. And today I'm uh, here with Charlene Register, who is an associate professor of African and African-American diaspora studies at UNC Chapel Hill, correct? Yes. All right. And thank you very much, Charlene, for spending some time with us today. You're welcome. This is a pleasure. <laughs> and so today um, I wanted to discuss um, Oscar Michaud. Am I butchering his last name? Is it Michaud? That's correct. Yep, Oscar Micheaux um, and early black film. Um, often when we think about black film and cinema, we we tend to focus more on the black exploitation era in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we know like in horror film that there were some black auteurs very early on. But Oscar Micheaux was born in 1884 and was making films at the turn of the century. And someone who works in media and in film, I hadn't heard of this man's name until recently. And it seems mm-hmm. weird that you have someone who's creating this, this library of film at the turn of the century, which is almost completely counterculture to what we would think of who would have access, and he's sort of buried in history. So could you talk to us a little bit about who Oscar was and sort of how he came to be? Okay. Um, Oscar Micheaux, as you mentioned, was born in 1884, and I think he was born in Metropolis, Illinois, but he became a Pullman porter on the train, which was a very common and desired job among a lot of black males. And so he worked on the train. I think it was called the Chicago Portland Run. 
So we believe that he engaged with a lot of the people that were traveling on the train and he had exposure to different kinds of people. And he heard about um, the fact that land was available in the Midwest. And at that particular time, if you uh, occupied the land, if you lived on the land, you could get, I think, approximately 140 acres of land in the Midwest. So he moved to South Dakota in Gregory County, and he became a black homesteader. And it was really being in this environment that um, he really began to sort of cultivate his interest in writing as well as in filmmaking. Now, for me, what I thought was just most surprising is who in the world would want to go to South Dakota (laughs) and uh, live on this land? And this was (laughs) certainly during a period, you know, where things just weren't that accessible. But anyway, he did. He was one of the few uh, black uh, homesteaders there. But uh, because you're in the West and the West can be so brutal in terms of the weather conditions and farming, et cetera, uh, he formed some degree of um, allies or relationships with his white neighbors. And he also said that because of the isolation living in the Midwest, um, that um, he decided to write novels. So Mm. he was a novelist before he became a filmmaker. And over the course of his career, he wrote at least seven novels. But some of the early novels became the basis for his first films. Uh, But anyway, uh, while living out there, um, he tried to farm. But he was unsuccessful at farming because... um, you know, the weather condition impacted whether or not farmers would be successful one year and unsuccessful another year. But anyway, while he was out there, he wrote these novels. And one of his first novels was The Homesteader. I think it was called The Homesteader, The Story of the Negro Pioneer. And so Mm -hmm. he was really talking about his life as a homesteader uh, in uh, Gregory, South Dakota. And he frequently wrote about uh, some of the characters in his novels were based on his white neighbors, So he had some interesting ideas, and he also said that he had difficulty getting it published. And so because of that, um, he somehow worked maybe for a publishing company and then was able to gain control of it. But it's still unclear to some extent uh, how he was able to publish his novels. But anyway, he did. So the novels became the basis for his first motion picture. So Michelle's first film was called The Homesteader, and it came out, I think, around 1919 or 1920. And in order to exhibit the film, uh, he actually tried to uh, show it in Chicago. But the film was very controversial. And part of the controversy had to do with the fact that Michelle implicated his father-in-law. And apparently while he was living as a homesteader in Gregory, South Dakota, he married a woman from Chicago and brought her back to Gregory. And their marriage was dissolved. And some people suggest that it could have dissolved because of the differences uh, uh, ideologically between Michelle and his father-in-law. And his father-in-law had been a prominent African-American minister in Chicago. Mm. So anyway, uh, there was some kind of rift, we believe, between Michelle and the father-in-law. So anyway, when his film screened in Chicago, some black ministers protested before the film censor board. And their protests basically stemmed from the fact that they felt that one of the ministers in the film, or at least the only, I'm assuming the only minister in the film, uh, was um, uh, based on the father-in-law. And I think they 
this protest kind of uh, hinged on uh, this idea that um, the minister was hypocritical. And mm. so they refused or rejected the film because it was supposedly based on the hypocritical actions of, quote unquote, a colored minister from Chicago. <laughs> and so anyway, it, it was somewhat controversial, but it did screen uh, based on the reviews that we have primarily from the Chicago Defender and other newspapers. And it toured, you know, many urban areas and he had the film screen primarily in these regions because there was a black audience and a black market. And this coincided with the great migration uh, where blacks were, you know, leaving the South and migrating to urban areas. Um, but anyway, once he achieved some degree of success with that film, he made a second film called Within Our Gates. And this one was probably the most controversial of any of Michelle's films. And um, in Within Our Gates, uh, it's actually about a young black woman who wants to uh, become uh, a teacher. And um, she does try to elevate schools and she tries to get money from white investors. But anyway, the part that becomes controversial, uh, and I, I hope I'm not getting this film mixed up with another one, but anyway, uh, Michelle, what, the reason it becomes controversial is because uh, Michelle has a character who's a young woman and uh, her parents are sharecroppers and uh, they, the, the family recognizes that the um, uh, white sharecropper for whom they work uh, is basically swindling them out of money. So anyway, the father confronts the white sharecropper and they have uh, an argument, but in the middle of the argument, someone who's peeping through the window uh, manages to shoot and kill the white sharecropper. Of course, the black man who was working for him and challenging him uh, is accused of committing murder. So anyway, uh, they decide to lynch uh, the black man and his family, pretty much, and in the meantime, while they are attempting to lynch the mother, the father, and the son, uh, the daughter has returned to the house uh, to gather some supplies. And when she returns to the house to gather some supplies, um, the brother to the white murdered sharecropper arrives and he basically attempts to sexually assault her. But when he begins to tear at her blouse, he recognizes a scar on his chest and most revealing, he discovers that that's his daughter. So that is why the film is so controversial, and that is why Michelle is so controversial. Now, added wow. to that, there's another complexity here, mm -hmm. is that The Birth of a Nation had been made in 1915, and that was a D.W. Griffith film. Uh, it was based on a novel by a North Carolina writer whose name was Thomas Dixon. So Dixon and Griffith came together and made this massive film. And I'm sure most people know about The Birth of a Nation. It was three hours in length. Uh, it was very dramatic. It had a lot of different scenes. Uh, and it was clearly about, to some extent, Reconstruction, what happened during the Reconstruction era and how whites became fearful because blacks were now free and they assumed positions of power. Uh, but anyway, the reason some people have connected the birth of a nation to Oscar Michelle's Within Our Gates is primarily because the way Michelle cuts the film. 
So Griffith had fabricated and popularized this technique called cross-cutting, where you, the camera cuts from one incident to another incident to, to, to somewhat link the two events. So mm-hmm. and when, when Michelle made Within Our Gates, he has film footage of the lynching of the black family cross-cut with the sexual assault of their daughter. So Michelle is saying, while when you wrote Birth of a Nation, you provided your perspective about what has happened to blacks historically, I'm going to provide my perspective about what happened to blacks uh, historically. So this is, quote unquote, the black version of the Birth of a Nation. That's what some (laughs) scholars have suggested. So anyway, through those two early controversial films, Michelle was beginning to establish a reputation and certainly with with the. Uh, the film Within Our Gates, the film was heavily censored. Uh, you know, it created quite a bit of, you know, havoc. But uh, it still was a fairly well done film. And black audiences flocked to the theaters to see images of themselves that were different from what Hollywood was producing at that time. So that's probably also the the strength of Michelle's films and the advantage uh, that they had with respect to the Hollywood productions. Uh, They saw images of themselves as black uh, intellectuals, um, as black ministers, as black educators, uh, and that was in stark uh, contrast to the sort of parodic constructions of blacks that they saw uh, in Hollywood-produced films. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that history. Um, There's a lot there that it's amazing again to me that so much of this has lost the time. Um, I've heard of Within Our Gates, I've never seen it, but and knew that it was sort of an answer to this notion of uh, of um, wow, Birth of a Nation. Yeah, Birth of a Nation. It completely just lost the name <laughs> of it. Um, you know, and Birth of a Nation is heralded as this this artistic masterpiece. Sure. Like content, be damned. It's you know this early film that it, at its length, all of the scenes, the cutting, the cross cutting that you mentioned. It's this film that. If you've ever studied film, you have to go watch Birth of a Nation. This mm-hmm. is, there's the warnings and all of these things, but you need to see this film. Why is it we don't hear the same about Within Our Gates? Why is it that Michaud has two films that are coming out at almost the exact same time, similar length, similar mm-hmm. editing style and process? Is it just pure racism and the 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 context of the time and, and where America was, or is there more to sort of why we, we don't learn about that part of the history? I think it's a combination of all of that. And also the film uh, had been lost for some years. And mm-hmm. so it actually it was found in an archive in Spain and it was originally called La Negra. So mm-hmm. when it came back to the United States in order for them to restore the film, they had to, translate it back to English and even today there's some controversy about whether or not the translation is accurate in terms of the way Michelle had intended for the film to be particularly when some of the characters speak in dialect is this an accurate translation and I remember Mm. going to a film studies conference years ago where there was this heated debate about whether or not the translation was even appropriate so I think the fact that the film was lost and then it was later found and then it was restored and then all the controversy surrounding it, I can assure you that in contemporary times, 
uh, when educators are concerned about teaching aspects of black history. If Michelle's film was not suppressed then, it certainly would be suppressed now in some arenas. So um, <laughs> uh, that's I, so I think it's all of those things. And then also having access to the film, you know, uh, and then when it was restored, um, you know, was that was the restoration appropriate is but it's the only document that we have. So we have yeah. to work with, you know, what we have. And uh, I just think um, trying to find theaters that exhibited these kinds of films to black audiences um, was, you know, daunting in and of itself because it came out in the 20s. Um, and even with a film like Birth of a Nation, uh, and, and I should have probably mentioned this earlier, is that when the film came out, the NAACP got behind protesting the film. So there were a lot of black people protesting the film who actually never saw the film. So, oh, wow. yeah. That, and that's so that's that's, an, you know, a, another development. So to what extent would people have had to, to have access to these films um, and also films that were shown in the north may not have circulated in the south um, right. for a lot of, you know, legitimate reasons. And even here, um, I did a little bit of work on Birth of a Nation in the state of North Carolina, and it was shown in major cities. But in small towns, uh, rarely did people, they probably heard about it, but rarely did they go to the theater, not unless it, the town was located near a major urban center where they could actually screen the film. And then uh, in places like Charlotte, North Carolina, when Birth of a Nation was shown in 1915, it's been said that the white patrons at the theater, uh, they jumped and they shouted when they saw the riding of the Klan. And you can imagine how intimidating that would have been if blacks had been allowed to attend that screening. Who wants to go in a theater like that? Because you don't know if you something's going to happen to you when you walk out of the theater. So all of those variables, I think, kind of impacted who had access, who actually saw it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's interesting. You talk about the access. And that was one of the things you talked about was this is going, the films are going out and being shown to black audiences in these major cities. That's something else that we also don't hear about is the idea that there were black audiences. Turn of the century, we're in this weird reconstruction, post-Civil War, leading into the Depression. It's almost as if black culture doesn't exist at this point in time. But clearly we have novelists, we have movies being made, there's other art. Why is there this hole in the sort of, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s when we talk about black art? I think it just had to do with... Um Blacks not having control over mm -hmm. being able to circulate widely uh, their work, their artistic um, uh, uh, productions. Um, and certainly if you were in Chicago in the 1920s, you would have gone to black theaters. If you were in New York, uh, the Harlem mm -hmm. Renaissance had uh, almost begun at that point or actually had already been well underway at that point. And so people went to the theater to see stage shows. They went to the theater to see vaudeville productions. They went to the theater uh, during what they call the Nickelodeon era, where mm -hmm. a movie only cost five cents. And they were basically uh, storefronts that had curtains and people, you know, saw films projected on, the, on a curtain. So, I mean, those avenues were available in urban areas. 
uh, the rural areas would have been more complicated. But even here in like North Carolina, in major cities like Durham, uh, they had a theater uh, perhaps as early as like 1925 or something like that, because this was during segregation. So mm-hmm. when things were segregated in the South, blacks uh, tried to have as many resources as whites. It was just separate. And certainly, even though they call it separate, but equal, it was separate and unequal, mm-hmm. you know. But um, they had black theaters uh, uh, in Durham, North Carolina, and um, they certainly had them in major cities like Winston-Salem, Greensboro, Charlotte. So people went to black theaters to see um, a lot of those films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in thinking about this idea of of this culture that's, running parallel and really sort of giving an answer to the major Hollywood or if we're talking about music, the major recording industry or the major publishing industry, why is it important that we don't lose these things? Why is it important that we don't forget about Oscar and that he was a novelist who took, you know, the homesteader makes this movie and builds this platform where very early on he was his own sort of Hollywood, his own filmmaking machine. Why is it so important we don't forget these things? Because I don't think we can understand the present if we mm-hmm. don't return to the past. So even like this phenomenon now of banning books, this happened a long time ago. So do we want to relive that experience and the implication and the denial and, you know, the lack of intellectualism as people pick and choose what who decides what is important and what's not important. So, I mean, for you to forget your history, you're going to be lost in contemporary times because you won't even know how to fight the obstacles that you are confronting. Mm-hmm. So that's why this history is so incredibly uh, important. And I think it's important for people to see, uh, you know, the kinds of black characters and persons who emerged even in a segregated era uh, how they overcame all the obstacles and still, uh, you know, left a mark, uh, made a contribution in significant ways. So it's incredibly important that we return to those things. I'm, I'll be honest with you, even doing the show, when they found his uh, film in Spain, I was like, how in the world uh, did his film, but what happened, it was probably banned in the U.S. and so it went to Spain and then they just preserved it in their archive. And that wasn't his only film that was lost. Uh, there was another film, and I'm not sure of the exact title, but it was found in an archive in Belgium. Mm. And it too had to be translated and, you know, uh, preserved uh, or at least restored so that it would be accessible today. So a lot of these films, because people, you know, didn't want to see them, and definitely with, within our gates, who wanted to see uh, that kind of um you know, a lynching of a black family. And in fact, it might be the only record of a lynching staged on screen in a film. Oh, wow. And and Oscar Michaud was responsible for that. I've never even thought about the fact, yeah. It might be the only uh, visible record. Yeah, that's really Um, interesting. Yeah, so that, I mean, you I want to know that. I grew up in the South. <laughs> I want to know that. <laughs> uh, and so, in thinking about our history as Black individuals and and our contributions to art, 
and so on so many levels. And you talk about this idea of banning books or banning really culture and, and knowledge and all these things. Why is it that we still today, why haven't we learned this lesson that like we can't go around saying you shouldn't study this information or you shouldn't study art or works from these people because you may learn something like what is this fear of learning about the quote unquote other in our world? Well, I think really I can only speak to what's happening now, but I think it's really a political agenda that people mm-hmm. are instituting to stay in power, gain power, um, and, you know, in some way control what might happen in the future. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think it's all about, a power grab. Um, And it's unfortunate for them because they might be more well-informed about how they want to even position themselves uh, if they had knowledge about some of this historical work that has been done. So Mm -hmm. that's what I see as um, uh, very problematic about what's happening now. And then could you... Speak to then, in your opinion, the importance and the amount of power that art holds specifically from underrepresented groups if there's so much effort to keep these stories and visuals and images from getting out there. How much power exists in us being able to tell our stories? Because I think if we hear it enough, we begin to believe it and we also Mm. internalize it. And... um, most of us are very much aware of, you know, prominent African-Americans who have come before us, who've made significant contributions mm-hmm. uh, on a lot of different levels and in a lot of different arenas. And so I think that um, uh, certainly seeing those persons in the past uh, helps to shape who we are in the present. And I'm very appreciative I'm grateful for everything that all artists across all genres and all arenas have done uh, because that, to me, to some extent, informs your own self-concept about what you're capable of, uh, Mm. how you think about things. Um, And so that's the value of, of, you know, returning to this historical moment where we see some of these early writers. If you read some of the uh, literature that evolved out of the Harlem Renaissance. I'm not sure that there was ever has ever since been a historical moment where so many came together to produce that kind of literature. And even if you read figures like James Baldwin, his mm-hmm. words are so uh, important today even maybe more so than they were when he wrote those words. I would have to agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the value that you get. And and his literature wasn't necessarily directed for or directed toward just African-American audiences. His literature was for everybody. And Mm -hmm. then the fact that he was so well-traveled and international, I mean, his work and his words have certainly... Uh, value to us even on a kind of international level and he's not the only one I mean when you think of all these other people uh, who were part of the Harlem Renaissance and who also were uh, political leaders people associated with the NAACP um, I was doing some work on Thurgood Marshall uh, recently because really I was uh, working on Duke Ellington and somehow mm-hmm. uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, was one of the defenders of the uh, Scottsboro Boys in Alabama 
uh, who were accused of allegedly uh, raping two white women on a train. But anyway, just all these people had done so much. And so that's why even like returning to Thurgood Marshall was so important when we think about who's being appointed to the Supreme Court today. Do they have the same uh, caliber of resistance and resilience and perseverance and understanding mm. about, you know, how far we've come and the obstacles we've confronted in the past. So anyway, so I could go on and on and on. <laughs> please do. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but no. And I think all that's so important in that and in, in, in really understanding the idea that you're right, that we've had so many storytellers throughout history who have sort of spoken up at these different points in times that we've tried to either suppress their individual voice mm -hmm. or the movement that their voice is attached mm -hmm. to. Cause when you bring up Baldwin mm -hmm. and you think about Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry mm -hmm. and that, that artistic period in the fifties, mm -hmm. sixties and seventies, and it's almost one of those, we, we hear about raising in the sun, but we don't always hear Hainsbury's name attached mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. And that there's that separation of, well, you don't need to know who made it. Just know it's a great story. Mm -hmm. And that takes me once to, you know, leads me back to this time period when Oscar was around I wonder sometimes what was it like to be an African-American turn of the century in a Chicago or a Detroit or a New York and you get to go to a theater and here's your image on screen from a director who understands you mm -hmm. and what you've been through and how for them like that's that's eye opening. Mm -hmm. And today we get it and we take it for we take it for advantage sometimes because we don't we don't fully get it all the time. Mm -hmm. But for them, like they don't have a Tyler Perry or a Spike Lee, Spike uh, Lee or, uh, or anyone else that they can fall back on. This is it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder what that would have been like as someone who studies film, you know, in your opinion, to walk into a theater and see yourself on screen in that situation. Um, I think it was probably very powerful and empowering. Uh, mm -hmm. for many black spectators to see themselves and to see themselves presented in an acceptable and appropriate manner uh, as opposed to going to Hollywood and seeing people being scared of ghosts and, you know, all of the other sort of distorted representations that um, proliferated on screen. Um, and also, I think that um, with um, the images that were projected, if you're in an urban area, you were surrounded by a wide range or a number of modes of cultural production. So, you know, you would hear jazz music emanating from the nightclubs. You would go to mm. the theater and see these uh, black films that reflected black life and all of its complexity. So not all the characters were good and not all of them were bad. It was a, a diverse array of characters projected on screen. You could go to the library and hear readings uh, by members of the Harlem Renaissance. So you were being bombarded with a whole world of cultural production that reflected the complexity of black life, but also provided uh, positive inspirations, I think, uh, with respect to black life. And so that would have been, you know, the advantage. Uh, I would say even now, even though I teach uh, film history, I don't go to the theater a lot because I'm not interested in <laughs> horror films. I'm not interested in sci-fi films. Uh, I probably am more interested in maybe historical films. But 
even if I go to the theater, well, being on a university campus, I do have that kind of intellectual exchange available to me. But other than that, I mean, I'm somewhat limited, you know, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. part because of region. But if you imagine if you were growing up in New York or Chicago, um, maybe even Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia during this era, you would have had that kind of cultural exchange on so many levels, um, you know, to inform your thinking, how you position yourself, um, you know, even becoming, even making the choice to become a professional. If you don't see professionals, you may not have the motivation or desire to become a professional. But if you see them a lot and hear them a lot and engage with them a lot, it certainly has to motivate somebody. So yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up because as you're talking, I was thinking about that idea that even today, when a black film is released, it still very much depends on the region you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, that you may see it, you know, if you're, it's no longer just New York City, it may be New York and the surrounding areas, but mm-hmm. the further into upstate New York you go, it may be two or three towns before you see the black movie that was mm-hmm. released. And so that we still, to this day, not that it's a form of censorship or banning or any of those things, but there still is this notion that we have to do a little more to get that inspiration if you want to see it, mm-hmm. if you don't live in an urban hotspot. Mm-hmm. And you also have to have the uh, exhibition networks. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure with independent films, if they have that same kind of ac- um, access to those um exhibition venues where the films could be screened, you know, and mm-hmm. you would have access to them. So you're right. That's another um, another important variable. Hmm. Well, Charlene, I want to thank you for the time you spent with me today. Um, is there anything else that you want to share about black art, black film, black culture, uh, about Oscar, that time period with listeners um, that we may not have covered? Um, no, I think that's I've pretty much said most of the significant things. Um, I would just encourage people, if you've never seen an Oscar Michelle film, definitely look at Within Our Gates. Uh, mm-hmm. It's available online. It might even be available through YouTube, or maybe it's definitely available through the Library of Congress. So I think if you click on their website, uh, mm-hmm. you should be able to see that film. And I just think it would be interesting to see so that you can process it and just think about the history, what has happened historically, and then how that might relate to contemporary times. Um, and there are common themes that um, certainly get reverberated across film and across time, because I was thinking about Spike Lee made the film The Black Klansman, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there are images of the birth of a nation in Black Klansman. So if you had never heard about Birth of a Nation, when you saw that in his film, you could not make that connection. So that's the other value of seeing this, knowing what these historical moments are and how that, you know, different filmmakers might address them or exploit them uh, in contemporary representations. And they do have meaning. They do inform uh, what the filmmaker is trying to convey. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that, Charlene. Um, if anyone wanted to get a hold of you to further this conversation or talk about films in general, how best could they reach out? Uh, probably through my UNC email address would mm-hmm. be uh, the best. All right. I will share that in the show notes. So okay. thank you very much again, Charlene. This has been amazing. Have a glorious day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists. Mm-hmm.